calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Buntwine, erstwhile monk-turned-traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world, that ours is not a loving god, and we are not its favored children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwine, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available. Please note, this podcast episode includes a conversation that has violence, graphic content, and other sensitive subjects. Listener discretion is advised. You have said multiple times that you are a survivor. Let me try that in English again. (laughs) Hi, everyone. I'm Evelyn, and welcome to Reppin. I hope you're ready for an incredible two-part journey. Today, we're going to dive into an amazing story of two individuals from very different worlds. One is a first-generation Indian immigrant, while the other was once a founding member of a notorious white supremacist group. They were separated by backgrounds and beliefs, but a devastating tragedy brought them together, which led them to form an unlikely partnership and ultimately friendship. I mean, they redefine what it means to be an odd couple. The first part of this story is with my guest today. He's a first generation immigrant who settled in Milwaukee. He and his family wanted to live the American dream and it's where his father built a sick temple. However, one day in August, 2012, their lives were shattered when a white nationalist entered the temple, taking the lives of many including his beloved father. And since then, my guest has dedicated himself to serving others in law enforcement, education, and social services. He is a co-director of Not In Our Town, which specializes in hate prevention and de-radicalization. He's also a professor of peace studies at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee and has co-authored the book, The Gifts of Our Wounds. Get ready to hear his powerful story of transformation, how he navigated grief, how that led to his friendship with a former white supremacist, and find out how they're working together. Please say hello to Pardeep Kalika. Thanks so much for joining me this morning. I really appreciate your carving time out. Pardeep, I know that you're a survivor. Tell people what your story is. It's great to be on with you. For the past 10 years, I think a lot of people have known me for 
what happened on August 5th, 2012, which uh, was when a white supremacist came into our Sikh temple and murdered seven people and then took his own life. One of those people that was killed was my father. And in the aftermath of that, just really doing some of the work around community building, rebuilding, repair, what that all kind of feels like. I've got to meet so many wonderful people. And I think just doing that work as we go forward is what keeps me busy and what keeps me inspired as well. You know, much like many of our journeys, I think my journey in this country started off, you know, when I was six years old. I came from Punjab, India, and that's really trying to fit into what America kind of feels like. I understand that at the time, you guys were one of the first Indian families. Yep. So you were sort of the unicorn. And back in the day, diversity wasn't sort of a big thing. But your dad instilled in you the American dream. You can be anything. Can you talk about how your dad talked about America and what the American dream meant to him and passed on to you? When my dad bought a house in the suburbs and was able to kind of financially make it, he flew an American flag in front of his house until the day that he died. Mm -hmm. As you see, lots of people who are mm -hmm. very patriotic, you know, or uh, sort of advertise patriotism. He was what America should be. When we came over, he did the best he could with what he could. Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as you described it, there was not a lot of sick families. There was not a lot of diversity. Right. This is a traditionally German-Polish type of neighborhood. And over the time, the neighborhood started to change a little bit. And we were part of that sort of first wave of sick Americans in the Midwest. Mm -hmm. There's a part of him that also fought to keep or preserve part of our identity and who we were. So I think that was always the conflict in him. There was a conflict in him that he was a farmer. He was a, a very hard worker. Mm -hmm. He almost was embarrassed at some point of gaining financial wealth in this country. Because in our culture, it's sometimes it's considered what we call Maya, which is illusions of material wealth here. There was also a desperation in him to do what he could with the financial gains that he had over time. When I was hearing your story or your dad's story, it really was the personification of the American dream. You know, immigrants come over for a better life. They believe in the values and ideology of the American dream, which is you can make something of yourself. And here's a man that came over and I correct me if I'm wrong. Your mom graduated fifth grade mm -hmm. and your dad graduated high school. Is that correct? That's correct. OK. And here's a man that comes over with his family. You were about five or six building a brand new life in a new culture, in a new world. And he taught you that you could be whatever you wanted and that you had the ability to change the world. And here he is eventually building a Sikh temple and he became president. And the temple was also the place where he was killed by a white supremacist. I'm not even going to mention his name. I know that you narrowly missed the shooting because your daughter, thankfully, forgot her Sunday notebook, which made you go back and get the notebook. And your mom survived it. She was there that day. You had recounted a story of two young children that had walked out of the church. They were the first to walk out of the church after the shooting had occurred. Can you detail what happened, what you learned from this child and how at that moment did it hit you? Because I would imagine you were probably experiencing a lot of conflicting emotions. You just missed it. Your dad was just murdered. Your child could have been killed. All of the different roles that you possess as an identity, as a son, as a father, as a sick. Recount that moment when the little girl kind of came out to you. I think she was about nine and told you what had happened. What were you feeling at that particular point? 
I was feeling all kinds of different emotions. When the shooting started, the first two people who were shot and killed were shot in the parking lot. And they were brothers who were meeting one another outside in the parking lot. And there's a few children who went inside and warned everybody else. Because of that, because of the quick thinking of those two kids that ran inside and then saw the first two people shot in the parking lot, there's a lot of people who were able to kind of hide and find cover. My mom was able to survive, and obviously my father was not. But I found out very early from that young girl what kind of happened inside and what people were doing. Before people could even translate and things like that, I was lucky enough to be able to speak the language and communicate with this young little girl. You know, I just asked about my father and uh, what happened and if she had seen him. She said that she did see him, that her father looked like he was dead. You know, she kept saying that she saw her father, but he wasn't responding. He had blood coming out of his eyes. And I hate to be th that graphic about it, but from my policing days, I can tell you that maybe he was shot or like mm -hmm. that was an entry wound. And, and later to find out, yes, he was shot point blank yeah. by the shooter. And the same room that her father lied was where my father took his final breaths as well. Mm. And one of the questions that I asked her during that time was, what was my father, did he say something? Did he say anything to you? What was his last words? Right. She said, your father told me when she walked into the room after the shot stopped firing, she, she told me that uh, your father told me to go find a place to hide and to just find cover and not come out. So she went into the bathroom that was in the same room. And she stayed in there. I said, what, what was my dad saying? She was basically like, your dad was praying. And that provided me some comfort. You know, all of the, the immigrants that come over and try to make America home. You know, my father died in this place that he helped build. He was a very hardworking, your typical, just, just hardworking, they see American. And I think there's no better death than to be able to, to die in a place that you help build. For us, the six, it's known as kurbani or shahidi or sacrifice or martyrdom. But the bigger thing is, what did he die for? Then I thought about him and I thought about the journey of immigrants. And as he was praying, I realized over time that that prayer was never for self. Mm. They don't do for self. They do for future generations or they do it for their community. I truly believe that he prayed for a continuation of the mission that basically started that day. Us speaking today, us, uh, you know, the messages that we can get through to people. I think that's part of answering that prayer. Now, when your dad was shot, he was praying. And I don't mean to butcher this. It's Weigehu. Uh, Weigru. Weigru is what he was saying. Yes. Well, sorry about that. No, no, it's all good. It's tough to... <laughs> Well, I want to honor his prayer and his last words. What did it actually mean? I mean, these were his final thoughts and final wishes. So Sikhism is a journey towards self. Truly, it's to find the God within you and the God inside of you. So Vaigru is a mantra that we repeat to say, connect me to you. Within a lifetime, if you can be connected, that is a lifetime that is completed in this form. When you call out the Vaigu, you're just calling out for connection. For us to kind of understand that is to also understand not only are we connecting to self, mm -hmm. but we're also connecting to the God in you, to the God in somebody else, to the God in the stranger or the enemy, whomever we're trying to connect with. And I think that that call out is him saying what we need more than ever 
is for us to reconnect with one another. It's amazing to me that his last thoughts were about other people and wanting the world to be a better place. Now, as a son and as a father, obviously, it's a devastating loss because it's a, it's a fundamental person in your life. It's your father. But since then, you have been on a mission of love and unity. How did you process that trauma and initial loss and grief? And what I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, I don't want to put any words in your mouth, Pardeep. I'm assuming that you experienced some level of survivor's guilt. Because you had narrowly missed it. You could have lost your entire family. How do you go from that moment of all of these conflicting positions and feelings that I would imagine are so powerful to a place where you are working to, I mean, I don't even know, have you reconciled any of those emotions and positions and places that you were emotionally at that point to now? Because since then, you have literally been on a tour to change the world with your story. So I guess my first question is, Pardeep, how did you or did you reconcile all of those emotions and how did you do it? Mm, that's, such a, that's such a profound question. And I haven't heard, like I've not been asked that before, of reconciliation. As you were asking, I'm kind of thinking about I can't reconcile yet. It, like for, I could reconcile and say, you know what, it's been 10 years, we've done all this great work, and I can look back and say, okay, am I done? Right. The question that you know, I'm probably asking myself, and I'm probably asking whatever force is out there. Mm -hmm. I'm not super religious, but I do believe I'm a person of faith. Mm -hmm. And when I draw strength, I draw it from this place of faith. And this faith rests in not just the, the scriptures, but in people mm. and just to ask people, am I done? Did I do enough for you all? Can I go back to my own family and go take care of my kids and be there for them? There's a healthiness to guilt. There's a healthiness to not being done or reconciling. We should, rec we should strive to, to it, but we should also remain open enough in our wounds that we understand the mission as we go forward. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday. So make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. My father, one last story about him. No, I, I love it. His final act was he had a gunman who was trained by the U.S. military. Yeah. Who identified with all kinds of neo-Nazi ideology and supremacy. We can always say that the per there's a person inside there too. Yes. But for him, he embodied just everything that we're fighting against. Mm. And my father, in his part, I could have left the Gudwara and exited. The exit door was nearly five feet away. So he could have left at any time. He could have survived. He could have, yeah, he could have survived. He could have left and he could have survived and he could have exited the building. Mm -hmm. But there was a part of him that knew that he had a responsibility and a duty. My mother was in there. Other people were in there. His last call, like you could hear him on the, on the dispatch calling out and saying, hey, there's a, there's a shooter in here. There's a gunman in here. Please get here fast. He's talking to them. But one of his last acts was 
he picked up a red butter knife mm -hmm. that was inside that room and tried to attack this gunman with it, with a butter knife. All of his impact wounds were all on his side of the body, on his left side of the body. And the shooter was a right-handed shooter. From all of that, he tried to attack him. He tried to lunge at him. Right. He tried to embrace him. There was another man who got away that was inside that same room because my dad was busy fighting this gunman. Oh Lots of people say to me and have said to me, especially like Second Amendment supporters, yeah. right? That were like, don't you wish your dad had a gun? That was what I was like, you're going to use this as an agenda. And I'm like, my dad had what he had to have. As an immigrant, we're not used to having whatever we need in that moment. And you don't understand the bigger lesson of all of this. He died in this place fighting. And he may have lost that fight, but he is not going to lose this war. I think your dad would be extremely proud of the man that you are and you've become, despite the pain and the loss that you must have felt. I'm glad you sort of were so honest about the reconciliation, because when you go through something the way that you've gone through, which I don't know, I don't have any sense of it. I mean, I can have as much empathy as I can, but I've never walked in your shoes. So I don't think it would be fair for me to over-identify and say, I know how you feel. But I think your father's values and truths and principles, like his his core foundation has clearly uh, been imparted on you and you are honoring him. Now, there is something that I think you said that was really interesting in one of your speaking events. You had said that it's easy for us to kind of write people off as monsters. Can you address why you say that whole ideology of monster? Should we call them monsters? Should we not call them monsters? Is it an easy pass for us to kind of call them as monsters? As we kind of go back to thinking about people and as far as like monsters, I was worried and scared that we can say to this shooter and say, you know what? This shooter is just, uh, you know, this strange person, this thing that I think without understanding all of the systemic fails, how these people are being created. Right. And so I know that there's other people who are just like him who are out there right now and we are failing them. And therefore we're failing our society. And so for me, it was very important just not to say, you know what, because if we think about like monsters, right? What can you do about a monster? You can, you can, I mean, you can be scared of them. Run. You can vilify them. You can run from them, right? We can all say, we're the good people and those are monsters over there. <laughs> Let's put a pitchfork in them or whatever, yeah. right? But I think that the community actually cr creates these monsters. I think sometimes us systems and policies, we end up creating these monsters. This particular person, grew up in the United States. Mm -hmm. He was once a child, a, a young white boy who grew up thinking about power and power dynamics mm. in a very perverted way. Mm. And sometimes it's subconsciously put into young males to say, what does power feel like? And if you don't have power, what does that feel like? Who shall you have power over? He went into the US military. He had all kinds of substance abuse issues, but he also had an identity issue. He didn't know who he was and he was trying to become stronger than self. And there's a lot of young men out there who are trying to be stronger than self. Sometimes their hatred is directed inwards, but a lot of times young men externalize the anger. And a lot of times the recipients of it are family, women, and then a society. Right. That was the same thing for this person. He externalized anger, you know, saw it as his sort of 
oath to the country to kind of create a white nation. That commitment gave him a bigger cause than himself to say, I'm fighting for this. And if I don't fight for this, the extermination of my race will happen. One of the amazing things about this is you lost your father in a devastating, horrific situation. You know, back in 2012, that was one of the worst shootings that had ever happened. Unfortunately, now, you know, we're still just spiraling out of control with um, shootings. We're breaking records, essentially, with one shooting to the next. We have become so desensitized by mass shootings that we don't even hear about it anymore. And that's frightening to me. Going back to my point, what's so interesting is despite the pain and all of the conflicting emotions that we had talked about that you had said, you haven't necessarily reconciled all of it, which I appreciate because that is very difficult to intellectually register. You have shown so much understanding for this man who took your father's life and so many other people. And you've been able to sort of look at it from an intellectual standpoint. Now, sometimes, Pradeep, intellectual and heart don't always connect. A lot of times. <laughs> yeah, most of the of time. time. I mean, have those two parts of you connected? You can understand that this guy didn't have an identity. And I really appreciate the fact that you have this understanding for this person that murdered your father, murdered so many others. But has your heart and your head sort of connected or are they in two separate places still? Yeah, they have now. I think that uh, initially, you know, the days after I was extremely angry, yeah. the months after just kind of buried myself into mission and duty and logistics. And then after that, there was a part of me that needed to understand why this shooter did what he did. But sometimes comprehension and compassion don't need to be reliant on one another. But for me, they did at that point. Okay. We can have compassion without comprehending somebody's existence. That's tough, though. It is tough. It really is. Yeah, it's tough because we always want to like make sure that we can explain somebody, right? Yeah. Before we can have compassion for them. Yeah. I'm, I was the same way. I'm the same way. But I want to help a world happen where we don't need to necessarily have the one before the other. Okay. Let's have compassion for the things and people that we don't comprehend even. And I can use this name, Wade Page. The Wade Pages of the world, I know that they're watching. I know they're seeing this. I know that they're listening. Mm -hmm. And the escalation of violence sometimes rely on the vilification of that person. I kind of knew the strategy as well, because when somebody sees it and says, okay, you look at how vilified he was. Right. I want to be even more vilified. These people that are writing out manifestos and then writing them out and saying, okay, I'm going to carry this out against this vulnerable community and look at how I'll be remembered. I have yet to see anybody write in a manifesto, Wade Page's name. I don't want media. I don't want nobody. Only, only the victims or the people that were impacted mm -hmm. should be able to say the perpetrator's name. And that's because maybe they've reclaimed power enough, but media sources should not be saying these people's names because that is exactly what they want. It's almost like they're trying to one-up one another, right? Like, if you can do this, I can do you one better. That's what it feels like. Oh, yeah. That is what they're doing. They are sort of like looking at each other's manifesto and building on it. Mm -hmm. What happened in Buffalo? There were citations of Brevik, which happened in Oslo. Basically, they're writing these things out. And a lot of it's like tangential thought patterns. They're talking about parenting. They're deeply in this paranoid state of mind. But there is, yeah, there is this part of them that's like trying to one-up one another. How did you convert 
or transcend rather, or incorporate, you tell me which is the right word, this sort of pain and converted it into this positive, you seem almost, almost, and I don't know, in control of your pain and you're using it. Like, how did you sort of transcend that? Because I know that you had said you had always wanted to be a superhero as a kid to change the world. And you always wanted to wear a cape. By the way, you should know capes go with tights. I don't know how you feel about that. <laughs> Talk about that. Are you good with tights? They chafe. I have to tell you. Yeah, I'm okay. I'm okay with tights, but maybe I, I got to lose about 10 pounds. <laughs> okay. You need to send me a picture because we need to put that on social. <laughs> But you've always wanted to change the world. You were a police officer. Going back to the monster thing, it's like a very clear cut label, right? Bad versus good. And we're sort of quick as a society in general to write people off as monsters. And as a police officer, you thought good versus evil. You just lock people up and keep people safe. So you went from being a police officer because you realized it's not that clear cut. There's more shades of gray to being an educator. And now you're involved with different projects, advocacy, different organizations. How did you convert all of this pain and trauma into what you're doing now, which is activism and not just in projects, but in your day to day life? I don't know where this comes from, but almost wired to like kind of listen to somebody's pain. I don't necessarily listen to the manifesting behavior or I don't listen to what it said. I'm almost in a strange way. If I'm listening to you. I'm almost listening to what is making you say that? What is driving you to say that? Sometimes it's not always a good thing because a lot of times, you know, my wife and other people will be like, are you actually listening to what I'm saying? Uh, I don't know. What did you say? <laughs> <laughs> so I'm all I like, I'm, I'm wired in a strange way of like, why did the person say it? I'll listen to the why or like the root of the pain much more than I'll listen to anything else. So somebody can come up to me and say, you know what? I hate you and I hate your guts and, uh, you know, I hate everything about you and I hate, you know, the way you dress. And I'm like, where is that coming from? It's the tights. Yeah, it's the tights. <laughs> I hate the tights. I don't like the, <laughs> whatever. I'm like, why do you hate tights so much? <laughs> oh, because they're safer. So I got you. Yeah, man. I don't know. <laughs> so I think part of it was, um, I just want us to, as a society to become a little less rejectionist and a bit more about listening to pain. We have to listen to our own pain to be, to be a healthier society. I see people almost go, go into a place where they're, okay, let me fix the world. Let me do something for other folks. So let me like listen to that other person's pain. And I'm almost like, did you listen to your own? You have like young men who are growing up in these enabling relationships with their mother figures and their mother wants to fix mm -hmm. the young man, but they're not looking at their own pain and really addressing their own pain and understanding how much this young man is responding to that. Right. So I think, yeah, I think all in all, just kind of getting good at like listening to pain, but don't prioritize the pain of society over yours. So how did you do that? Was there a moment in the aftermath? You're looking at your daughter. Thank God she forgot her notebook. Thank God your mom survived it. Mm. How did you listen to your own pain? Because at that point, you were not a therapist. And I know you, along with Arno Michaelis, a former white supremacist, um, you guys have become friends and partners. The two of you guys sort of travel and share your story and experiences both as individuals and together in an effort to create conversations that will make a change in a positive way. But at that particular point in time, you were not a therapist yet. So how did you listen to your own pain? 
I wasn't a clinician at that time, but I think I did it the opposite way. Most people should do it is that I was so busy working on others like, okay, let's go to the school. Let's have this conversation. Mm -hmm. Then after the the conversation with the school, we would have 20 to 30 people who come up and say, I want to take my own life. My parents did this and that. And I started to realize that there was something else that was going on and that people would open up if we opened up. So we shared our vulnerability. That vulnerability led to other kids. And sure enough, after every time we did a talk, there would literally be like 20 students and they they would wait for hours just to reveal their pain. Right. We let them know that if you have the courage to reveal, you can have the courage to heal. There was also something else that I think you touched upon in a previous speech that I wanted to bring to you because, you know, I'm sure you look at your daughter every day and you kind of go, oh, my God, I almost lost her or I almost lost my own life. There's a lot there that I'm sure you are still wrestling with, but you are working to give back. You said something, and I'm going to paraphrase, that society can't wash your hands of it, meaning these people and these types of situations can't just write it off and that we are terrible (laughs) at looking at ourselves. And it kind of ties back into what you were saying earlier is like listening to your own pain. And I also want to paraphrase something else you had said in another interview. You said hurt people hurt people. And that we need to kind of look at ourselves to look at the accountability and responsibilities that we as individuals and also as a society need to take. Otherwise, we become complicit. Can you explain that and correct me if any of that was wrong in terms of thought? No, no, all of it was right. Even think about society now and some, this is a separate conversation, but the food that we digest is just so poisonous. I don't mean literal food, but I mean, like we're so hurting that we normalize it. We habituate and we're like the biggest issues that I see facing America are habituation and identity motivated reasoning. Mm. People just get used to whatever soup they're simmering in. They don't understand how much it's hurting them even more or their families or their children. Again, looking at your own personal pain and what that kind of feels like and how that manifests itself. People tap into pain and they take advantage of it. And I, I never want to be that person that takes advantage of somebody else's pain, because I think that that's predatory. Mm. What was one of the biggest turning points for you where you really turned the corner? Because once you lose a fundamental person like a parent, it does change your baseline, I believe. It does truly change. It's a chapter that's clearly marked, but you are literally going out consistently talking to people, making the change that you believed in as a kid, things that your dad taught you. So what was the biggest turning point for you where you said, okay, I can make a difference and this is how I'm going to do it? One of the biggest turning points, and this is sadly something that we're still struggling with, was I saw my brother, and it's only the two of us. Mm -hmm. I'm the older one, he's the younger one. And I saw him understanding this all completely differently. Within the days after the shooting, there was a part of him who sought revenge and whatever revenge felt like. There was a part of him who was just kind of like stuck in this place. Over time, I've seen a deterioration in his family. I've seen a deterioration in his mental health. I'm sorry. He hasn't seen his children for a very long time. He has been in and out of jail. There's all kinds of drug and substance abuse and mental health and all of that kind of put together in the aftermath of this. Now, Maybe that started before the shooting. Yeah, I have just seen people lose themselves in the aftermath of hate. Mm-hmm. Just looking at my children and seeing them. And then also there was a moment where I walked back inside the sick temple of Wisconsin. 
I think about five days after the shooting, cleared off all the blood on the carpets. Mm -hmm. They took out all the bullet drywall stuff, right? Honestly, there was a part of me that also wanted them because they like glowingly walked up to me and they're like, party, we took all the blood out of the carpets. We did this. And I wanted to be like, why? Why did you do that? Why did you think it's going to make me happy? I didn't say that out loud, but I, I know things are not going to be the same. I know we, we can't just gloss over this. But the other thing that scared me at that moment was I saw the faces of children be in this place. And these are immigrant children who are first or second generation at the most. Mm -hmm. Some of them have just come over from India. And I saw them wondering about their place in America. And that scared the shit out of me. Like all of us have scary moments in our life, right? I was scared when my kids were born, but that scared the shit out of me because this person who decided to do this, this domestic terrorist, actually is going to succeed at what he wanted to right. do, which is terrorism, which is to keep these kids from achieving their brilliance, to be the next doctor, to be the next lawyer, to be the next leader. For me, it was like, no, we got to fight against mm -hmm. that. And I, I didn't see a lot of superheroes. I didn't see a lot of people on TV that look like me. He said, you know, I see Tom Cruise on TV. I see so-and-so on TV. I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. Become it. Become it. Right. If they're in their fear right now, and I don't go and show them how you can talk to white supremacists, because their worry was, I can't talk to the next tattooed white guy, right? They were in that place. And I'm like, I'm going to show you how we actually can do the work as well and reform these scary people. Through the 10 years, and you've met so many different people, victims, I would imagine, children, survivors, maybe other members uh, from different hate groups, your own daughter, you know, um, I don't have kids, but I'm literally walking around going, like, what kind of world are we leaving our kids? Like, mm -hmm. just the planet and the world, but the ideology and the principle, like, what are we passing down? Yeah. Has there been a particular experience that you've had with either side that made you realize in the last 10 years in all of the work that you've done and all of the speaking engagements, your book, all of it, was there one experience where you said, holy shit, what I'm doing at that turning point that you're talking about, it's happening. A few weeks ago, the administration launched an initiative. It's the United We Stand initiative. For the past 10 years, we really have been trying, and this is post 9-11, we've been trying to make sure that we take a look at domestic terrorism and what that looks like and feels like. Yeah. But the focus was really on foreign-born terrorists. And now that the administration is like, okay, we need to preserve our democracy. We need to preserve the way of life of America. And not only are people of color, LGBTQ, Muslims, Asian Americans being attacked, but the very fabric of our democracy yeah. is under attack. And to see the administration commit funding to this, mm -hmm. commit infrastructure to this, mm -hmm. to see people, not just the leaders, but the rank and file, also understanding the dangers of this. That was just a beautiful, beautiful moment that we enjoyed at the White House, meeting the president, obviously is kind of seeing his commitment towards it. For me, it's never about politics. It's never about what side or anything like that. I want to be able to reach all people, but there's also goodness in seeing and getting upstream. So working with a white supremacist or working with somebody and having them gain inspiration from your story. I can't count how many people that I know and are good friends who have lived a life of hate are like, man, I find so much inspiration in your story, in your book. Right. I think to be able to touch those hearts 
is really important for me as well. And obviously like the community that's internal. There's a pivotal point when my daughter did a spoken word at school and I never knew that she was listening these 10 years. <laughs> How old is she? She's almost 17 now. This oh, all, good luck. For the past 10 years, I'm like, I don't, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> no, we're dealing with all kinds of difficulties with that. I'm sure. Boyfriends and all that <laughs> other stuff. Good luck, oh, dude. Yeah. <laughs> and it was last year, and she was like, I want to do a spoken word, and I want you to be there. And she does this eloquent spoken word, and she expresses her frustration at August 5th and society. And at the end of it, she says, I am not your enemy. You are. As a father, to understand and to know that your child has come to that place where she knows and she hasn't internalized it and she's actually gained strength from it. I took that as our future is good. And I know there's work to be done. Every single parent makes the promise. When my child is born, they're going to inherit a world that was better than the one I inherited. We have to be conscious of our failures in that. At some point, we do have to realize we are somewhat failing. Somewhat. <laughs> We're not creating a society better. Yeah, I'm, I'm putting it nicely. <laughs> We're failing in really big ways. Yes, yes, we are failing. We have to be honest with that. You're right. Let's not sugarcoat it. We really need to recommit ourselves to that promise. First of all, what an incredible woman you're raising. I don't know about all the other stuff, the boyfriends and all that other stuff, but <laughs> just based on what you told me, what an incredible woman. When you now look at your life between what happened in August when you lost your father to the work that you're doing and what your daughter said, what do you think your dad would say to you and your daughter? How do you think it would register based on what he had said his last words, you know, which means I think reconnection and light and bringing light to get back into the world. I think he would say, thank you for listening. My father and I never, I mean, we, we didn't always have the best of relationships. Mm -hmm. Last time that I saw him alive was my birthday, August 3rd. I think there was a part of us that had reconciled the immigration journey where, you know, you're trying to like figure things out. And I saw him with both of my kids and we had maybe like two drinks that night, two, three drinks. My last memories of him was, you know, when you have like three drinks, there's this like glassiness over your eyes. Yeah, it's called your buzzed. You're buzzed, <laughs> right? Yeah, it's a good buzz. A good buzz, a good buzz, a birthday happy buzz. And I saw him giving piggyback rides to both the kids and saw him just enjoying his life and where he had become in this journey, right? He had achieved what he needed to achieve. Right. And I didn't know that that would be the last time I would see him alive. God, that's painful. But it's beautiful at the same time too. And it, like, as I even describe it to you right now, I can see it. Mm -hmm. There's certain things that, certain smells that go away from people over time, but there's just some pictures that are seared in my heart. Mm -hmm. Yeah, my dad would say, thank you for listening. He probably would have said the same thing I said to my daughter. I didn't know you were listening the entire time, but you were. <laughs> Especially after a buzz. Yeah. I'm glad you remembered yeah. anything after that, you know, because I have trouble remembering where my keys are. <laughs> I feel like the world is becoming more disconnected. I don't mean to minimize this, but I'm just going to use this as an example, as a really bad example. It's not to minimize anything that we're talking about. One of the many things that I'm hoping to achieve with this podcast is I want to see all of you. I want to see who you are based on your actions that you live by, not by what you say you live by and, and may believe 
but do you actually live what you believe? A lot of times as individuals, going back to your point, we're disconnected. So we may think we believe one thing, but we're not actually living it. There's a huge disconnect there, both as individuals and a society. So I guess, Pardeep, from your experience, both as a therapist, as a policeman, as a father, as an activist, how do we fix this disconnect? How do we do our parts as an individual? Because not everybody has your platform. So what can we do to be the agents of change? I think we can all heal back better. How? We have to listen to that pain, right? We have to be informed by it. We can't be offended by it. Um, we have a history within the United States has created every single system that is here. So whenever we're exporting anything, we're still exporting white supremacy. A lot of times we're saying, okay, you know what? We're harming the community that, that's hurt by that pain. But you're also harming the community that is inflicting that pain. Think about all of the, the people that exist that gain from that. Right. They're actually not gaining it because they're having to live with this heart of whatever it is. And sometimes it feels like hypocrisy. Sometimes it feels like going somewhere and saying, you know what? I don't feel that. And so there's shame and guilt and all of that around this. Mm. I do believe that within the American fabric, some guilt is good, but there's huge amounts of guilt that still are weaved very, very deep in that fabric. If we're shutting down books that are talking about that pain, yeah. if we're shutting down podcasts or like programs or even like history around that, that means that we're so offended by it. We're so sensitive to it that we're not going to be able to do anything about it. Listening to that is an act of courage. For my small part, I'm just going to say we have to be courageous. We have to be courageous and go back and say, you know what? Here's what that looks like and feels like, not towards me or just for this community. And that's how it's getting in the way of us actually moving forward. And then do something in the vision of not the next 10 years or the 20 years, but let's imagine bigger. Let's not box it in to fit yeah. because that, that is the problem. The problem is we're limiting. My fear is that people are wanting other people to be in boxes so that they can keep people under sort of like control mm -hmm. and keep people subservient to whatever leadership looks like. Yes. I, mean, I think everybody can be a leader. Everybody can step up. So let's be better parents, let's be better teachers, let's be better community members, and really have the courage to listen to pain, but also have the wisdom to provide healing. I really, I have so much respect for you to have survived everything that you have gone through. And I'm sure you continue to go through to manage and to be as understanding or to have this perspective. Because again, you could just be under the blanket sucking your thumb and no one would be, you know, <laughs> faulting you. I do believe we have to check ourselves first. We have to look at ourselves. We can't just be like spewing outwards and putting it on somebody else that it's someone else's fault because they're a part of a certain community and that's who they are and that's what they do. We need to look at all of us as whole in terms of being a leader. There are quote unquote leaders or representatives in our government that are not actually leading Leading is showing the way by action and, and being an example and doing right, you know, when it's a harder path to take for the greater good. That's my interpretation. Leading is not about trying to hold on to power or saying something really loudly. Just because you're saying loud things doesn't mean you're saying anything of substance. 
You know, we really need to stop looking at the shiny things and being distracted by it and really start looking at like what's actually happening and like who's walking the walk. And I so appreciate everything that you're doing. And I also really appreciate your showing how you're healing. So hopefully other people can learn how they can heal. And that despite an extremely devastating experience, that you can still contribute positively and not just exist in trauma. And despite an extremely devastating, you know, event, that you can still contribute positively and turn it into something that can help others. Okay, so having said that, I'm going to ask you to sign us off, Pardeep. Can you let me know who you are and what you represent? Oh, thank you so much, Evelyn. Likewise, I admire you and, you know, making sure that the podcast is loving and inclusive. It's been an honor to be out with you. I am Pardeep Kalika and I represent fatherhood. A big thank you goes out to Pardeep Kalika for being my guest today, for sharing his experiences and for demonstrating how he turned his devastating loss into meaningful action. His ongoing efforts to promote healing and unity, it's truly remarkable. But hold up, because I've got more in store for you. So in the next episode, you're gonna meet Arno Michaelis, an extraordinary individual who is actually one of the founders of a major white nationalist group back in the 1990s. You'll hear about his journey and you'll hear the factors that fueled his hate. And you'll also learn about his transformative shift in perspective. Check out this clip. Rather than developing an ideology based on my lived experience and what's happening in the world around me and in my firsthand experience, I adopted this ideology of the past of us versus them and, and primarily an ideology of race. So be sure to catch part two of this special. Now, if you love this episode and you want to show some love for the series, here's a scoop on how you can do it. And trust me, it is super easy and totally free. All you got to do is subscribe, share it with your friends, download the episodes and drop a review. I am about having conversations that matter, conversations that lift each other up and teach us lessons that we can all benefit from. And guess what? I'm trying to build this community and I want you to be a part of it. So make sure you tell your friends because the more people who tune in, the more who will spread the word and the more we can come together to create positive change. Sound good? All right, so let's do it. Now, I know you have thoughts and opinions and things you may have walked away with from this conversation, and I would love to hear them. So hit me up on social media. You can find me on Twitter at Reppin Podcast or on the gram at Reppin underscore podcast. And don't forget, swing on by to the YouTube channel for some exclusive content. Always thanks to my technical director and musical composer, Nelson Pinero, for all of his time here and work. And love and thanks to Gracie Kong. Reppin is a Suburban Outlaw Productions. Until next time, stand up and represent. Hey there, this is Justin Bartha. I made a funny new podcast, King of the Egg Cream. It has the greatest cast in the history of podcasts with actors like Louis Black. I'm torn by my feelings for two women. Bobby Cannavale. You can eat it. 
Or if someone hits you, you can put it on your cut. Melanie Linsky. I wonder what these marvelous things are that look just like boiled chicken feet. Jason Ritter. I can break things and pick locks and kill people. Michael Stuhlbarg. The whole point is to inspire people that they should make themselves better. Ari Grainer. No, don't whet its appetite. What are you, an idiot? Me, Justin Bartha. That's not just any egg cream, that's a Lemke's special. And all narrated by the hilarious Richard Kind. This is the story of Harry Dalowitz and how he rose from nothing to become New York's King of the Egg Cream. So if you like funny true stories, come listen to King of the Egg Cream, available wherever you get your podcasts.